This is the Rose Woman Pod, and I'm your host, Christine Marie Mason. Every week, this show provides a little something to help us live with more freedom in our body-mind to move from taboo to liberation. We want to inspire curiosity in any of the things that are frozen in us or shameful or secret. Everyone has a perfect body, perfectly adapted to what is demanded of it, subject to genetic preconditions. Maybe you have the perfect body for driving to work and sitting at a desk, or the perfect body for running a marathon, or the perfect body for having croissant and cappuccino while talking to your friends at the coffee shop every morning. But if you're a woman, it's likely you have an argument with your body anyway. It's kind of hard to make sense of what the perfect body is when our lives are changing and our bodies are adapting. There's less time outside, less physical labor, but the image in the media is still a slinky, almost unattainable gorgeousness. In the 1960s, the average height and weight for American women was 5'3 and 140 pounds. Now it's 5'4 and 170 pounds. And the average size? The average American woman wears between a Mrs. size 16 and 18, which corresponds to a woman's plus size 20W, with greater distinctions found when considering race and ethnicity. So here we have this size issue, and then we have the diet industry that is sending us information. The global weight management diet market was valued at $192 billion in 2019, and $78 billion of that was in the U.S. alone, or $768 per adult. So one cost of this dissonance is our mental health. Body dissatisfaction or body image disturbance is so pervasive among women that it's been coined normative discontent. And one study says that in the U.S., 69 to 84% of women exhibit body dissatisfaction, which is a risk factor for eating disorder behaviors, depression, and low self-esteem. But this mental health issue isn't just personal, it's political. Here's a quote on the term body politics. The term body politics refers to the practices and policies through which the powers of society regulate the human body as well as the struggle over the degree of individual and social control of the body. Now, that can show up in government and laws, economics, uh, driving consumption, all kinds of things, even the personal power that comes through intimate relationships. And we are really looking to have more control over our own bodies. The media influence is super strong in this area. Here's an interesting statistic. The highest reported prevalence of disordered eating occurred in the 1920s and the 1980s, the two periods during which the ideal woman was thinnest in U.S. history. And that's the environment that today's guests came into. In the early 90s, Emmy, supermodel, became an icon of body positivity and really kicked off what is now a 30-year movement into BOPO, BP, and you know why you can walk into a Target and see model mannequins of different sizes, athletic mannequins. She is an eating disorder educator, an author, a magical Amazonian woman. Well, actually, let me give you her real bio before we jump into the conversation. Uh, Emmy was born in New York, raised in Saudi Arabia. She returned to the U.S. as a teenager and attended college on a full athletic scholarship rowing for Syracuse. She was invited to the U.S. Olympic team trials, the national team trials, She spent some years as a reporter and morning news anchor for an NBC affiliate. And when she walked into a New York modeling agency, she was booked on the spot. 
And that was the catalyst for her becoming this face of the body positivity movement. People Magazine selected her twice as one of the 50 most beautiful people, 1994 and 1999, and Revlon chose her as a celebrity spokesperson. Glamour selected her as Woman of the Year. Ladies Home Journal chose her as one of its most fascinating women and most important women in 99. She continues to travel around the country with a message of increasing awareness and raising funds around eating and body image disorders. She was the first model invited to speak about these issues before a congressional subcommittee in D.C. She's an honorary board member of all kinds of eating disorder groups, including the EDAP and the AABA, and one of the first national ambassadors for the Multiple Sclerosis Society, and an author. Her first book was True Beauty, Positive Attitudes and Practical Tips from the World's Leading Plus Size Model, and her 2016 book, Curvy and Confident, 101 Stories About Loving Yourself and Your Body, is full of wonderful little tidbits. She continues to be a vocal advocate for women of all ages to be fit and healthy, and dare I say, has even begun to see the body as a spiritual vehicle. I'd love to start by hearing how you as a rower and an athlete and uh, just in general, what your journey has been from where you started with your concept of what your body meant to where you are now with what your body means. Interesting. I grew up in a home where my mother was not uh, loving her body. And I learned early on at five years old in New York City, the first cross really that I saw, honestly, was the a group um, that would get together and weigh on a regular basis. And I was a five-year-old kid that didn't have, you know, someone looking after me. And my mom went up and there was the, the scale and all these chairs in front. And that was the beginning of me seeing what the weight on the scale, if you lose weight, you get excited, you get it, everyone's clapping. If you gain weight or maintain, there was a groan in the room. So at a very young age, and I saw my mom eating crazy things sometimes. So me walking in as an athlete and being naturally that, just very, very, I've, I, it's just a gift of mine. And I honor that as a gift because it really pulled me through a lot of different areas when I would burn a lot of energy and come home, my mom would have to ask my, my stepfather, can I give her another sandwich? So there was also that control around starving and needing more energy. And there was all these misconceptions. So my body was, I was taught my body was not to be trusted because it had it was like this wild horse that needed to be trained and maintained and limited so that it didn't quote unquote get out of control and it and it took a it took quite some time and i lived in saudi arabia so on top of we moved to saudi arabia so on top of all this where i was blossoming as an athlete getting outside winning medals doing all this inside my home was this same attitude of that scale that i saw in the weight in the in the group that was doing all the weighing there was this medicinal scale in my stepfather's closet and he would weigh my mother and I and say, Oh, you guys. And so there was a celebration on the outside, 
yet a very culture, a, a culture that didn't celebrate women or even want to look at their bodies because of all the, the coverings. But then there was this thing going on inside of my own home that was so not healthy. And so it was like fertile ground. Yeah. I want to pause for a moment because you won't be seeing the gesture that Emmy is making, but she made basically, you know, those scales you see in the doctor's office as a vertical pillar, and then the scale goes across and she, it's literally across like where you're worshiping and sort of that much meaning being attached to this external measure that it becomes almost a religion. I just found that so poignant. I wanted to point out the gesture for whoever is listening. Um, also, you know, I grew up, I, I spent a couple of years living in Iran. Oh. And so I know exactly what you're talking about. We would leave the house and like people would try to pet our hair. Yes. Come up and touch you. Yes. Or save your hair with the hair cutter. You know, they'd <laughs> save your hair actually. Yeah. And and it was just at the time when if we were in Iran, so when Iranian women were beginning to take off the chador and wear jeans or wear clothes to school, um, to university. And, and it was, uh, this idea that you, your body was dangerous either because it wasn't, there were, there are multiple levels to that. One is that it was not approved to be seen in public, but in part because it would create too much of a reaction in the viewer of your body, which was such, which is still persistent today. Huge blessings out to the women of Afghanistan who are directly experiencing that right now. Um, but this idea that it's that the level of control is so subtle that it can be overt like that, and at least it's public, and you know what you're dealing with, versus this thing that's in your own home, the, the messaging of your body as being not trusted or wild can occur on many levels. You can't trust it. Okay, so you're in that situation. You're coming of age. You're getting weighed by your father in the closet. Very, <laughs> very traumatic. Yeah. So then what? I just am, I feel so blessed that I had something that I was good at and that was being the athlete and being able to go to a high school and just try rowing. And I was a basketball player, but I, I really tried this rowing program and being from Saudi Arabia and not really being in a boat ever. I just said, let's give this a try. I was among other women that were athletes, that were tall, that were Amazonian. And for the first time, I was with my tribe, uh, as in today's terms, my tribe, my vibe. And I got a scholarship to college. And even when I was in college, a lot of the girls and I would talk about our bodies and our coach would flip out and say, stop trying to lose weight. Stop it. You're, you're burning so much calories, so many calories. So even in, even when I was almost 20, 21, but when I got out of school, when I was in no longer, I almost like say civilian <laughs> life, because when you're in college, you're in D1, you're always in your sweats. You're always like the, the big athlete on campus and people always know what kind of crazy stuff you were doing. And, and you were seen as the athlete, but when you go out into the real world, men would say, my God, you have broad shoulders. Or wow, you could probably crush me. Or here I was, the, the Amazon, in today's society, back in the 80s. And I realized that Amazons have a hard time fitting into a Cape Moss world. 
and it didn't make any sense. And I kept on looking around at me and I saw all different hues of color, the bouquet of beauty. And I saw all different kinds of athletes when I would do triathlons. And But the men and some people, some p- women in my life would say, gosh, you know, don't you think you're going to overwhelm men or don't you, you know, so I was always through such an interesting limited filter that myself, my body, what I, what room I was taking up in this world was either, and especially when I ate with gusto and loved every single bite and didn't make excuses like, oh, I know this is bad. I'm going to, you know, I just jumped in. And when I was done, I didn't have to clean my plate or did or whatever. I didn't make it an issue. I got a lot of flack, but boy, you really, you know, you really are enjoying yourself there. And I go, yeah, join me. (laughs) So interesting dichotomies of like what I was picking up and I couldn't even anchor on my um, TV jaunt because my shoulders were broader than the male anchor, really. Yeah, I this idea that the Twiggy Kate Moss generation, that thing, that there is no place for the Amazonian archetype, which has been such an amazing archetype throughout Western history. Whether you look at the actual Greek goddesses, the Roman goddesses, the Indian goddesses, they're like, you know, look at those statuary, you know, or look at uh, some of the Joan of Arc archetypes. Like, when did it become that the Amazonian archetype had no place in the world? Anyway, that's not an actual question. That's a philosophy question. <laughs> and, and to be threatening or to, yeah, it was just a, you know, so the body has always been, I started adopting of mantra. Well, why not? Why can't we find clothing that reflects my various personalities given any day. And it was very hard. And when I started doing live appearances on network shows and my, or TV or hosting shows, uh, my stylist had to cut up my back and with garments and make it so that it would fit my shoulders or fit this and, you know, put electrical tape on the back. And that was a big joke, but I was like, yeah, well, I'm going to still reflect. I didn't want to get into something too small. I wanted to reflect what looking great in whatever way that I rock or check conservative, preppy, whatever, whatever kind of personality I wanted to project that day or attitude or feeling. Um, I always tried to do it, even though the garments weren't made yet. So today it's interesting how more and more clothing companies are working to fulfill a need. But if the the C-suite is truly not into diverse images of beauty, they're not going to hang in there for that moment where you either drop the business or you click in for another like six months where it can turn. And I'm seeing a lot of companies that were in full figured or the extended for full size range, size zero to 24 or above, the companies that just got in to make money are just about to get out. And it's we're back into an interesting place where the woman's body and also in Texas, all this stuff that's going on in Texas today. <laughs> well, what are we going to do? What is the most important part of ownership? Isn't that the individual's right to be have ownership of one's body and what kind of clothing we can be able to get and making a stink and also what other laws can be 
wrapped around what we do or not do with our bodies. It's, it's it, Here we are in 2021 and we're still having these discussions. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. But I think you're pointing to it when you say I wasn't hired for TV anchor spots because I was broad shouldered and the men were smaller. And right in there is the psychological observation you need. Why, If men aren't anchored in their own masculinity, if their need to be perceived as the biggest guy or the strongest human in the room or that they don't have control over the women in their life, that's a, that's a weakness, not a strength. Uh, so there's something definitely in what you're saying there in terms of the, I do find it weird right now. If you're a person who's anti-vax and pro these Texas regulations, you are you are living in an illogical world where you can't hold here's when the government can control your body and here's where it can't. You must examine your own misogyny. You must. Um, anyway, back to back to this idea of, of coming into this decision that you're going to take up space, you're going to have pleasure, you're going to wear what it is that suits your personality, just like basically finding your center in a world that didn't really welcome that. Uh, and then suddenly seeing that you struck a note to become the face and body of the body positivity movement uh, 20 years ago, uh, like you, what you were saying uh, was touched so many people. Disruptor. It was not body positivity at that time for sure, but it was uh, shock, horror, you mean I'm going to shoot that fatty? Some photographer said that to me, actually. And uh, yeah, it was um, it was interesting. And here I came with the lens of a reporter. I left TV reporting and went to New York City and fell into this industry. But I always believe that things happen for a reason. And you just kind of go with that strong impulse to try and follow where it's leading you. And ugh, I would never, ever, 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 ever think that I would get into modeling. It wasn't my thing. But when I went on that lunchtime from my job in New York City, someone said, you should just look into it. I just showed up and they signed me on the spot. And you show up to these opportunities, not knowing where the, what door it's going to open. But with my curiosity and my training as a reporter, when I signed on with Ford Models, there was a story that, <laughs> that was begging to be told and slowly, 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 step by step, and then it starts speeding up, media opportunities started to happen. In 94, when People Magazine wanted to do 50 of the most beautiful people and include a more wide array of beauty, um, I found myself in a double-page spread uh, reenacting Angre's Grand Odalesque, and that threw me around the world. Because as you had mentioned, it struck such a nerve and it got people angry. It got a lot of women talking and having conversations. And when I would go live and do fashion shows or other clients would have me travel and do whatever it was, um, I hired a publicity firm and they put me into international uh, venues and talking, and I found out that it was not just something that was an awakening or a, a need or a, it was women that were thin, very, very thin, medium-sized women, women that were larger, women that were much larger. It wasn't just a full-figured issue in the United States. It was a women's right, oh, I got goosebumps all over, women's right issue around the world. 
that the body was now being discussed in a way of like, well, why, why shouldn't we be on billboards? And all of us, not just one group, why shouldn't we have clothing options? And why shouldn't we, just because our bodies are different, doesn't mean that we're any less valued. Well, it's an incredible distraction from doing meaningful work to be focused on the adornment and the starving of oneself and the micromanagement of the body instead of loving it. There's an awful lot of time that goes into that, that you're never going to get back. Mm. Like I'll send you a poem later about this thing about the boys knowing that they're animals and that all the time you spend in the half-life of polished beauty, which degrades after about eight hours and then double degrades in four hours, two hours, et cetera, after that, that the amount of time that goes into that really is a way of keeping women away from their their dharma or their greater purpose and economic power and all kinds of other things. But that's a that's a much bigger question. I, I think I owe you a personal gratitude because I can remember around 1998, sitting there and saying, I've been triathloning and starving my double D cup body into a size two and deciding that I was not going to do that anymore. And that I was just going to let the chips fall what they may and eat what I wanted and move the way I wanted. And um, I, I have the feeling that unbeknownst to me, it was the work that you were doing to seed the idea that you didn't have to be a certain way that was living in the zeitgeist that allowed me to make that first move towards seeing my body as a spiritual creation, perfect the way it was. And so, you know, just the, the steps you're moving through about claiming the validity of a broader variety of body types. And, and then like what we were talking about before we started recording, then moving into this idea where you are now of connecting that body love to love for the world. I'd really love to hear how the migration from the so social cultural perspective moves into this much deeper rooted activism. Uh, many, many times uh, the, the root of some of, of the ills that we have in society is where we have not had the innate uh, needs met to be loved, to be heard, to be valued within our own home. And, and, you know, it's a lifetime of journeys, a lifetime of learning and growing up beyond that. And a lot of children are seeing their mothers uh, body bash themselves every single day. Parents talking about the mother's body, the mother talking the, the husband's body, whatever more. The, well, however, the dynamic is about the food that's bad, food that's good, and really twisting how a family meal can be where there can be nourishment, both spiritual and physical, and co common um, understanding where there's safety and where there's diverse bodies in, in unison, sitting together, honoring one another, and elevating the conversation uh, for the greatest good, not only of those around the table, but for the neighbors and the community and the state and the world around them. And it takes... It certainly takes time to break down, oh, I grew up in a family of dieters. Do I want to diet? I've done it all. That doesn't feel good. Well, I want to feel good. And taking that journey and leap into dissecting and peeling back the onion, sometimes it is, it is difficult. But when you get through certain things and you sit with the uncomfortableness and you let it break down around you, you come out with who you want to be and how you want to roll, 
it is worth it because the earth needs us so badly with this UN announcement last week or two weeks ago about how bad it is. Our earth is really having a tough time because all of us are running around from the neck up and just using, consuming and and not recycling or, or being sustainable or having any thinking about that. And when, when we connect ourselves back into our body, we have to, we're not here as a physical human being searching for a spiritual journey. We are spiritual beings on a human journey and, we, and connecting back, taking off the tentacles of control, taking back all the distractions and saying, I, I, you know, I need to meditate in order to get there. I need to be, take things a little slower. I need to make my choices that really affect me, my family, and how I feel, and the food that I eat, the water that I drink. And when you do these things and the exercise, not just to burn calories or to fit into a dress set, but to actually release stress, breathing, and all that, that connects us back into the body. Then we realize that when we consume food, we want the best food, the best water we possibly can. And one begets the other and you look around and if you're distilling your water now, or if you're doing different things that your, your local water source is not doing for you because it's just bad water, stop, look and listen. What, why is it that, you know, we're having a problem with all these different problems with water because our earth is really going through different changes, greater and quicker than ever has is there a connection between people not being connected to this beautiful vehicle that needs food and water and earth to keep it alive? Might be. It certainly feels that way to me. Yeah, I think that what we are doing to the earth, we're doing to ourselves. I have a teacher who says, the earth's burnout is your burnout. Like if you're racing around like crazy, it's just a mirror that the earth is racing around like crazy. Um, but I, I, I want to bring this into a practical thing. So if I've grown up, let's go back to this mealtime example. If I've grown up in a, in a family where it's dieting and it's restriction and it's criticism and whatever it is at the dinner table, and I want to begin to make that shift. I love that phrase. It's not my fault, but it's my responsibility to make the shift. So tell me what it looks like for you to have a family meal that's both physically and spiritually nourishing. What does that look like in your household? Thank you, Christine. It's a great question. My daughter and I, uh, she is now at college, but during pandemic, we had the wonderful opportunity to be able to not forage our food, but go to the store and figure out what it is that we wanted for the week and make choices that in other areas of our life we would do without because we wanted to buy more organic and you know pesticide free and GMO free. And it takes time to look at labels. And we're, so we would sit and we would uh, work, work, work during the day and then take a break and come down and start cutting and talking about our day and preparing our food with intention, not making too much food, but sometimes on Sunday we would do roasts that we would put into these glass containers so that we could grab and go for lunch times and stuff. But for the evening meal, we would set the table really nicely, light two candles. We would um, sit down and not just be standing up or just, you know, oh, I, I've got that. We would honor the time that we would have and we would serve, we'd talk. And then before we would eat, we would just kind of intentionally thank 
the people who picked our food, the people who put it onto the backs of the trucks, the people who got it, planted it, you name it. As, as far as we can go without it being laborious, but truly intentional with thanks and gratitude. And the ingredients that we would make, we learned, we sometimes failed, but you learn about what your taste buds love and staying away from tons of butter and using maybe avocado oil, using different ideas and thoughts and concepts that keep it really nourishing for the body um, without weighting it down and eating when we're hungry and going back for seconds if you're if you're still hungry, for goodness sake. Yeah, taking time for conversations so that the experience, it is an experience instead of just quickly throwing food in and going, but sitting and letting there be silence between us, between pauses and between eating. Mm, I love it. It sounds almost ceremonial. Yes. And her girlfriends, little ones, the little ones, when they were little, there was, once they came over to the house on a Friday night before a sleepover, there was a system they knew at our house. So once it hit a certain time and the food was at a certain place, they go, okay, ladies, we're ready to sit, get ready for dinner. And then they knew they would set the table, they would do their thing. And it was beautiful. And we'd all, you know, I would let them have their time to sit and eat with themselves and be goofy and fun. But I love the fact that they got excited to eat our food that was gluten-free and dairy-free. And they didn't care because they said, they said it tasted good. (laughs) Yeah. Sort of a life, a life as a bouquet of beauty. Also, you said something earlier that I just want to reiterate. One of the guidelines of this time sounds like it's banning body bashing and banning any talk of calories once you're sitting down at your beautiful meal, that there are table topics that don't have to do with control and limitation. So it just sounds like you've really been cultivating a very beautiful body awareness and and the beautiful life that comes out of that. Mm, You're freer. You're freer, freer, more free. You're, you're freer to, to just be and hold space. Sometimes there's some some people that jump onto social media and they they are in a lot of pain. And uh, you know, I, I sometimes just say, "Talk to me. What's going on?" And if if this place is not serving you, and it's it's triggering you or it's making you feel really bad the door is always open we're we're, we treat ourselves with kindness just to let you know and we're we're trying to get through the day just like you and we're trying to be loving and if it's really really hard for you please there are so many tribes that have their own vibe that might be really aligned with yours but no our door is always open and you can always come back in but if you do come back in if you have nothing nice to say, please don't say it at all. We would love to hear from you, but we would love it through the lens of kindness and through the lens of being loving. And I just know that there's two different things. One is love and one is fear. And a lot of people, when they haven't had a lot of uh, support, want to lash out to the people that seem to be having it all together. And got it news for you. All of us have stuff to deal with. And it's our choice on living on the top side of the coin or the other side of the coin. And I hate to be simplistic about it, but there's so many factors that you can, you can get involved with. 
when I start going down from a good feeling thought and I'm up here and I'm, you know, and I start going down, I go, why not feel good? If I'm living my moments right now, why do I have to live in the past or why do I have to project in the fear and future, in the future and fear? I'm here right now. Is there anything coming to get me? Is there someone, some animal jumping out of anywhere to dark trying to eat me? No, it's my mind doing tricks and it's been trained to do this. So I'm teaching myself really like a little dog training myself. And that dip happens. I sit back and I go, why not feel good? And I say it over slowly, over again. And it helps me to be like, nothing's changed. The world isn't going to end because I'm not trying to solve every last problem in my head. Hmm. So knowing where to engage, knowing what to allow in your space, but also like, I think even in the way you're speaking about what I would have called online haters or trolls, it's so interesting, even what happens in my body listening to you when I think of them as online people in pain. <laughs> Who's going to be nasty? You know, that you have to, you have to. So there's this question of like, if you're of an impulse to criticize others, to put them in a bucket of wrong, to dislike them, then there's just something in yourself that's inviting more clarity. Or maybe you've been taught that the value that they're espousing is just you know, something that is unacceptable. And that rigidity is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt them in the long run. I was stung, though, when I heard that, that little photographer line from when you were younger about not wanting to, sh like, I've got to shoot that person, that their shock at the world not being the way they've uh, been trained that it is. When you have a shock moment like that, uh, and, and you see someone else in that shock moment, to be able at that moment to summon compassion for their shock. That oh, is, I, I didn't have shock then. And it was more about the, what the world was going to think about him. If he were to shoot me, his agents, the people who had him in Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and L, mm. it was at the very beginning of, of first billboards and first ads and stuff. I was a 12, 14, size 10, I mean, 5, 10 and uh, a half. I mean, I was very, you know, below average today. I was upset because I had a professional career beforehand. Yeah, if you ever talk to him again, it can be like, how did it feel to be part of the revolution? <laughs> Are you ready? I did talk to him three years later. I was down, I act, when this whole thing happened, I was shaken so much after the shoot I took a hiatus for three months seriously walked away from my bookers and they were my chart was full and um, I really had to reevaluate like what the heck is this about why is there such resistance to to include the majority of women in imagery selling the clothes like it just didn't make any sense. And all these myths about women who were above a size 12 didn't have money and they couldn't buy luxury, That all that stuff. So I saw him three years later. I was shooting down in Miami with a German client. So I stayed down in Miami quite a bit and I was helping the luncheonette woman with the morning orders and with coffees basically. And the phone rang and it was, a, it was someone from New York looking for this photographer. And I go outside and I'm shaking because I'm thinking, 
I, of all people, of course, it was for me. I mean, I was the one helping. And I look at this man who has cleaned up, doesn't stink, looks like he hasn't done a lot of drugs in many, in probably a year. He looked bright eyed and he looked actually handsome. I couldn't see that before because he, this man looked like he rolled out of bed. It was just, he was not the same man that I saw. And he had two models next to him. And at that time, People Magazine had already hit the stands and I was doing a ton of talking about it. And he looked up at me, he goes, Emmy? And inside my head, I'm going, he, he can't remember who I was. This is like the most ridiculous. He goes, you know, we've got to shoot with each other, love. This is going to be great. And I'm thinking, he doesn't know who I am. And I said, you know, Mr. So-and-so, I, I didn't say Mr., but I don't, it, whatever. I, we did shoot together. And I want to let you know that you actually were a really important part of me sticking in the the fashion industry. And I want to thank you. Oh, by the way, here's a phone call. I turn around. I don't remember walking. I think I floated back to where I was. And I said, my God, you know, you never know who, where these bullies come from. And if you let one person trip you up of your destiny or your journey, oh, let's figure that out quickly, please. Because if I did walk away, I would never have done this in and I would have, I would have missed out on the joy of what I got to do over the last 30 years. I love that so much that, you know, people ask a lot of the time, like, why would you put yourself out there? Why would you open yourself up to criticism? Uh, and that these opportunities, like that person was your first taste of what it was going to be like. And oh. you got through it. I remember the first person who called, like this woman went off on me on social media, calling me the socialist CEO. And at first I was like, what? <laughs> and then I was like, actually, yeah, yeah, I'm a CEO and I make, I optimize profits and I do what I need to do to build this beautiful organization. But what I do with my money as a private citizen is try to optimize the community, like that we have a world that works for everyone. So it's true. And then I was like, maybe I'll buy that domain name. <laughs> you know, so her attack and criticism turned into like a, a sort of a, a good idea examination of my identity and my purpose. Right. And the very thing that's making people as vitriolic, I guess is the word I'm looking for, that very thing, if it triggers someone that much, you know you're onto something. Because things where there is shame. And there are secrecy, there is opportunity. Anything that people like, you know, tuck their heads away, run in the closet, try to hide, that pain is an, it creates amazing opportunity to be of service, to build something. So tell me what you're building now. I was out, you, know, you have all these Emmy style, Emmy wellness, you have the 2016 book. Um, uh, I, I'm sort of wondering as this comes together and you're entering your own third age, you know, the, the period of life, the free period, the kids are gone, all that stuff is happening. Where do you see it landing for you? Is there an integration or something new that's coming? Well, I've been working on the Fashion Without Limits uh, initiative that I began with Syracuse University. And now I'm speaking to other universities to uh, build out curriculum, to be able to bring um Fashion Without Limits into a nonprofit of its own so that I can get forms into these smaller fashion design schools, larger to fashion design schools um, around the world so that through education, we no longer have an issue that the designers don't know how to make size zero, 
to whatever size clothes because that's always been the issue. Oh, we don't know how to make the clothes. We don't know about the proportion scale. Well, with Fashion Without Limits and 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 like-minded partners within design schools around the world, there's really a lot of hope. And there's some really wonderful professors that have been slogging away at this in their own in Washington, up in Cornell, um, in pockets around the country, but they're working on their own um, because either the very, very heads of the school don't believe in inclusive fashion. So the the whole world of Fashion Without Limits is to really reach out, give a hand and say, you're valid, your feelings are great, This here's here's some help. So that's exciting to see going forward. So just just to clarify that, that's a training program. Fashion Without Limits is a training program in fashion and design schools that helps people understand larger body types, whether they're athletic or whether they're just larger overall, and design for that population or those needs so that the bias goes away. That's right. So that, it, you know, you, you can have designers that are trained once they graduate college for a company that just goes up to size 12. And all of a sudden they say, hey, we'd really like to go up to size 24. Does Do any of our designers know how to do this? All the, the, the schools that have fashion without limits or like-minded programs are going to raise their hand and say, yeah, we could do that. Let's go. Instead of wasting millions and millions and millions like it's been done over the last 20 years, 15 years, really, where people are jumping in and doing this. And, you know, on the the back, not the back burner, but possibly getting back into TV where I love the medium. And if it's with the right show, um, to be able to talk about these concepts on a very regular basis to women every day, which would be great. I love that. And, and I hope that the design process includes not just size, in the absolute, but size in motion, like how your body moves through the tasks of the day. And, you know, how do you avoid everything popping open at the boobs or like, you know, just like, it's just like a a constant fighting with your clothing. Do you want to know why all of America is wearing yoga pants? That's why. Like you go, if you go take a flight, remember when people used to dress for flights? Yes. Now, basically everyone wears yoga pants and a hoodie, no matter their gender. And, uh, and I, I think that that's indicative of people just want to be able to put things on that feel good and they can move in. And if you can do that with flair and style and design and personality, you have, I, I, you know, to your point, you know this already, a ginormous market waiting. Ah. Yes. Well, that's wonderful. And what about the wellness side? The wellness side is um, over pandemic, I had my entire, as everybody did, they had, uh, if you weren't online, I did all of my appearances in person and I had a pretty full uh, 2020. I immediately went into 90 days of live Instagram every single day for 90 days. I turned on my little light uh, for Instagram and did readings with, uh, you know, and had different authors on and did meditation and then had discussion because I needed to hold on and serve. I, I was used to doing that and it was like, my legs were cut out from underneath me. And at the end of 90 days, I bid adieu to my group and said, I believe that I read Brene Brown's book and I got so inspired to go into coaching, life coaching. I said, if I could inspire executives that are looking to shift their focus 
into a deeper meaning of the business or a sustainable business or 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 I said I could ask the right questions. I could really help the leaders of today and future leaders could go forward. So that is what the wellness is all about. And I'm all into the question with with my clients I ask, what is your plan for play? And I get this, what are you talking about? And I said, listen, if you're working hard and you're not playing, you're not going to be any good use to anyone. And you want your company to stand out and vibrate from everybody. Because if no one is playing in your organization while you're working hard, you have overworked, stressed out people who might have resentment and you have to, you know, there has to be a shift. So I love to get out into nature. And this is the other other part of the wellness thing that I need to be outside now. This is one of the things that I took from 2020. I I have to be either walking around the water or up in the mountains or outside. It is a vital, important thing for me. I feel so much better, more relaxed, and I'm not doing it for the calorie burn. I will do it for the steps if I hit you know, uh, 3.2 miles or whatever it might be. And I have a nice long day on the weekends that gives me so much happiness. And I love feeling my body that it says, okay, I, I you, you've given me a good walk. There you go. Cause it's, I, I look at it as that like, that's my responsibility, not something I want to ignore. Yeah. Designing a company, a community, a family, a life that is able to enjoy nature and enjoy itself seems to me vital for our collective future. Plus it also just, you know, makes the experience of being here on earth in a body while you are a lot more enjoyable. Well, you can come hike with me anytime. I would love that. We've we've got some more things to chat about offline, online, it doesn't matter. I'm just so happy to meet you, truly. Well, I am the luckiest person because I meet these guests and they often become friends. Yeah, we go hiking, we go swimming, we do collaborative projects. So if you uh, know someone who's got a body dissatisfaction issue or a disordered eating, please turn them on to this episode and please support a change in the way we talk to our beloved embodiment. Love your body now. It's the only one you have. I'd also like to introduce you to another friend, Katie Fogarty, who has a pod called A Certain Age. She's got a different episode each week for women who are redefining the way their life is rolling out after 50. A lot of giveaways and great book lists, so please check that out. And come find me. I'd love to see you on Instagram. My personal page is the.rose.woman. My company is Rosebud Woman. And you can come and find the organization at rosewoman.com. We make great intimate products for all ages of a woman's life. May you be happy today. May you be free. May you make choices that align with your highest and best good. All love. All love.